I'm sort of dancing around the text this morning. The uh, Old Testament text is overwhelming. I can only imagine if your king and your son has turned against you and gone to the neighboring uh, tribes and has participated in this civil war and now you're at war with your son and in the midst of that war your son is killed. And so I'm just going to let that story speak for itself as I will the passage of the New Testament and the Gospel. This will be more like a Marshall McLuhan sermon who said that the medium is the message. The message is really the person delivering the message which is often more important and more connected to the integrity of the person than the actual words spoken. But please forgive me today as it feels like I'm flirting with heresy. However, perhaps that always happens when you preach. It's just today I'm a little more conscious of it. Our scriptures this Sunday reflect the life and spirituality of three men, David, Paul, and Jesus. And in 1 Samuel, David as the biblical king of the golden age of Israel, around 1,000 to 900 before Christ. This is a time for Judah and Israel, and he's named and claims the title as a man after God's own heart. A great title. I would love to be able to claim that. An amazing legacy for a man who seems complex, erratic, creative, sometimes immoral, entitled, and often very manipulative to our current sensibilities. And in 1 Samuel, the people want a king and they get Saul. But David becomes the eventual primary leader of this golden age of conquest. He fought many wars to bring a short-lived unity and peace. And then under his successor Solomon, the completer of his longing and desire occurred to build the temple. The short-lived establishment of an earthly theocratic kingdom. Yet in human history, earthly theocratic kingdoms always pass away, perhaps exactly because they are earthly and human. Then in our Gospels, we are told about Jesus, whose lineage is traced back to David, uncharacteristically and somewhat ironically through his mother Mary. And ironically, David's own lineage is passed down through another woman, Ruth. Jesus also ushers in a theocratic kingdom. However, this kingdom is not about conquest, but about inner awareness and union with God. And his most famous line, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus' claim is that I and the Father are one. A person from God's own heart, perhaps. Union, not sameness, but ultimate relational trust. I am the incarnation of what union with God looks like. And this is an inner kingdom of the heart, not an outer kingdom of power and manipulation. And he tells us that that kingdom is within you. In fact, it often seems to me that Jesus' whole life is a spoken and lived metaphor of that inner kingdom. And it's from this place that he makes the claims about himself. 
claims that if only taken literally, can easily be twisted and used, co-opted, into supporting a kingdom of conquest, rulership, and earthly kingship, which the masses are hoping for and the establishment is often afraid of. In fact, they turn against him in the end, both sides, and they kill him. The establishment out of fear and judgment, the masses out of disappointment and anger. And in the brackets of David and Jesus, we have the journey of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Look at his claims. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Paul, before his conversion, was a lot more like David. He was about conquest, war, political, religious, and ego kingdom building. It was about who's in and who's out, about I'm right and you're wrong, and he persecuted and killed those he considered out. Not unlike the Crusades, where the attitude was, let's just kill the infidels and let God worry about their souls. After conversion, Paul was more like the Christ, like Jesus, and he would say he was in Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is simply gain. This is definitely inner kingdom work and building. The kingdom is in you. This is a universal message. It's not exclusive. And it's now available not just to non-Jews, to Gentiles, but to everyone. And this is a kingdom of compassion instead of competition. Years ago, I heard Henri Nouwen speak, and he was talking about the movement from competition to compassion. And he mimicked the Olympics and three gold medal winner, or three medal winners, swimmers, standing on the podium. And first of all, the bronze medal winner, and he's standing there, and he quickly looks at the gold medalist and looks away, and he looks at the bronze, looks away, looks at the congregation, and in his thoughts, he says, I'm bronze, and you're nothing. The silver medalist takes a quick look at the gold medalist, looks away, looks down his nose at the bronze medalist, looks at the, at the audience and said, I'm silver, you're only bronze, and you're nothing. The gold medalist, he's standing there and he's looking at the silver, you're only silver, you're only bronze, and you're nothing. What was the difference between them? One one-hundredth of a second. And Nouwen's point was that in, in competition, we look at those small little ways in which we're different and make them everything. Whereas the invitation of compassion is to look at those huge areas in which we're all the same. Now there's nothing wrong with trying to win. But if you have to win, you will invite jealousy and resentment from others when you win, and about others when you lose. And as Paul puts it, compassion is his, his words are, putting away all falsehood. It's defining yourself by what we have in common, rather than a lie of defining yourself and others by our small differences, our rightness, or our wrongness. 
For Jesus, the kingdom within was a movement from this competition to compassion. For Paul, following Jesus meant joining that movement. Instead of looking at little ways in which we're all different, look at those huge ways in which we're all the same. I might suggest this is a definition of humility. And Jesus insisted on it even if it killed him. And it did. Perhaps this is the burden and freedom of inner kingdom work. This isn't a new story. It was there in the imagery of Eden, a metaphor that I keep going back to, and some of you have heard me speak about this, but I need to bring it in here again. In Eden, two trees are singled out, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the command is, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that doesn't make sense. Here's a tree that promises, I'll understand how to do it right. It only makes sense to eat from that tree. Don't I want to do it right? And yet the command is don't eat from there because the minute you do, you're going to die. We were so tempted by that tree. We never noticed the other one. It wasn't as significant. It wasn't concrete. You couldn't see the fruit. It wasn't beautiful to look at. It didn't promise some sense of self-reliance and control and so we ate. Now, I want to say both trees are important. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this metaphor is in the center of the garden. Everything that God created is around it. The command is not to ignore it, to not even worry about right and wrong. The command is don't eat that tree, don't eat that fruit. Notice it, but don't make it what you base your identity on or the identity of others. It will never be life-giving. And the minute you eat of it, you will understand some things, but your ability to understand mystery, paradox, metaphor, will suddenly push you towards a literalistic understanding of life. That the literal, mental faculties of words will suddenly become more important than that language of the heart. Instead, Jesus invites us to eat from the tree of life. Jesus, resurrected as the cosmic Christ, I want to suggest is and was that tree of life. There he used the metaphor of a tree. Here in John, he uses the metaphor of bread. I am the bread of life. If you eat me, you will live. I am the bread that came down from heaven. No, you didn't say the literal Bible-believing Pharisees. We know your parents. You're an insignificant guy from Nazareth. And they miss the reality of this metaphor. The reality is that we all came from God. And Jesus is saying, just as I came down from heaven, we all came down from heaven. However, I am an ultimate example of what living into that reality looks like. I am the incarnation of that ultimate reality, the Word. And union with God is available to us all. Just eat from the tree of life. Eat what I eat. Eat what I am in God. We are all one in the cosmic Christ that was in the garden from the beginning. 
And these truths are metaphorical exactly because they are transcendent. Literal language will never comprehend this. Literal language of necessity requires us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every time we do, something in us dies. Our ability to understand or at least comprehend or trust mystery, the metaphor, the transcendent. We lose the ability to see the fruit of the tree of life as the place where our identity lies, being one with God who is life and life eternal. Now when Paul first sees Jesus on the Damascus road, he's blinded. He's blinded to his old identity based on getting it right. Somehow the tree of that fruit or the fruit of that tree doesn't look as good anymore. And when he's able to see again, he can see beyond the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat from the tree of life. This is wonderfully summarized by the Sufi mystic Rumi, who says, Out beyond all thoughts of right and wrong there is a field. I'll meet you there. We don't ignore the right and the wrong. We transcend it. David tasted this in his longings and desires and sometimes in his actions, which are so wonderfully reflected in the Psalms we all love. However, he struggled all his life to bring union and oneness into his experience. And then he died, as did the kingdom he established. Paul was able to connect his longings with his experience because he ate the bread of life, the fruit of the tree of life that he had encountered with the cosmic Christ on the road to Damascus. He was still very aware of the temptations we all live with of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the temptation to be preoccupied with right and wrong, truth and lie. However, his identity was founded in his relationship with the Christ. Instead of thinking he understood it all, he began to simply trust it. To eat the body and blood of Christ is to trust, to believe. This is not mental assent. This is trust. But look at how he describes his struggle in Romans. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And what's his answer? It is a non-answer. It is a metaphorical answer. It is an answer of trust. The answer he gives is, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And all he says is, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I am rescued. I am rescued. He's not exactly sure how it happens but he has eaten from that fruit and he trusts it. And he too died. But the words on his lips were, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And lastly, 
Jesus became the incarnation of this cosmic Christ, the tree of life in the garden, one with the Father, that incarnation. And he's saying, eat this bread, drink this wine, and then he too died. And his final words were, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And then he yielded. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Perhaps we too are invited to humbly say, forgive me, Father, I don't know what I'm doing, but into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so today and always, let us eat this bread and drink this wine. Amen.